0: Thank you for listening to the Coal Mine Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's the start of 2024. I'm happy to again welcome back my friend Jason Bloom, one of the top jury consultants in the country. When he was last on about two years ago, we talked about trends he was seeing as trial practice began to restart after the COVID pandemic. In this episode, we talk about whether those trends are continuing, and in particular the desire of many persons called jury duty today to actively try and hold perceived wrongdoers accountable for the consequences of their actions. Our conversation offers insight not only into how today's civil juries are made up, but also about the overall perspectives of American voters here in 2024 as our country begins another presidential election process. Welcome back. This is now the third time I've been lucky enough to have you so we can talk about jury selection. When we last talked, it was a year and a bit ago. And at that time, we were all still finding our way after the pandemic. The courts had reopened. We were back in business, but we were only just back in business. And we spent some time identifying some things that had come up in jury selection that were new, that were changed. And I'd like to go back in time to get us started here. And talk to you about some of the things you saw that were new then, and then in some later questions, maybe we can spin those out.
1: Yeah, what was new then is several things. One was an uptick in the desire to serve on the jury. We always think about, hey, no one wants to sit on a jury for two weeks, two days, or two months. Right after the pandemic, we didn't find that at all. More and more people were willing to serve. Less prospective jurors across the country were raising their hand and trying to get excused from service More willingness to serve on the jury is certainly something that started to trend then. Less trust. More people I am found during focus group research did not think that we landed on the moon, for example. Less trust in government. And a lot of that has to do with the instructions, the information we were receiving during the pandemic about issues that were really important to us, like our health, our security, our safety, our future. That went into the rise of the ultra-crepidarian which uh, we can talk about later. I know that's one of my favorite words to teach people. Don't know of it, but it is basically talking outside one's authority, acting like an expert on something you're not really an expert on. And that comes from scrolling. That comes from scrolling on the phone, spending about three seconds on a particular post, not taking a deep dive on that post, on that headline, on that information. And then because of so much other information coming at us, never returning to that piece of information. The defense by defendants in lawsuits, civil lawsuits about how we followed the policy just doesn't jive as much as it used to. Following the policy is not enough because the reaction from the juror is, well, you should change your policy. It's outdated. It's not a sign of the times. It doesn't work, which blends into the next trend. And that is what's been going on for the last couple of years now and certainly came from the pandemic is this environment that is ripe for jury nullification that is let's change the rules of society as opposed to applaud people who are complying with those rules these rules need to be changed that gave rise to the social justice warrior which is certainly something that I look for uh, in jury selection now another trend that popped out had to do with damages and this goes against conventional wisdom but I found in focus group research that mock jurors were thinking to themselves if a defendant offers out an alternative damages number hey the plaintiff's requesting 5 million we should think it should be 500,000 or a million that is misperceived by the recipient of the information the decoder as an admission of liability or guilt I know that's not the intention But that's how it's now being perceived. In other words, on the street, the word is, if you didn't do anything wrong, then why are you offering out money? And, of course, defense lawyers do this because of conventional wisdom. But I always say this about conventional wisdom, and that is, if everyone followed conventional wisdom, no one would ever lose. Another trend that emerged post-pandemic was a new rationale for higher damages awards. So a very prominent plaintiff lawyer in Houston used to talk about in order to increase damages in a personal injury case, a negligence case where someone has gotten hurt, you need to make the jury mad. You need to make the jury sad. I think there's a third ingredient now, and that is you need to make the jury want to hold the defendant accountable. So accountability or holding them accountable are the new buzzwords that you hear in focus group research when you ask these mock jurors, why are you awarding $5 million? Why are you awarding $50 million? This word accountability is a lot more prevalent in these conversations and these discussions than it ever was. And then I think what came out of the pandemic as well is just more noticeability about the Trump effect. What this guy did, no matter if you like him or not, had a very important impact on jury decision-making and how people see issues, and that is he took very conservative people around the country in very conservative venues and made them feel as if they were victims to harbor a victim mentality. And everyone knows if you want a good jury on the plaintiff side, you want people who harbor that victim mentality. If you're on the defense, You want to get rid of people who see themselves as victims, who see themselves as living in an unjust or unfair world. And that's why we saw, at least in Texas, a lot of very large verdicts, pro-plaintiff, high-damage verdicts, coming out of venues that historically have been known to us Texans as very conservative
0: One high-level reaction I have to hearing you list those off and comparing with my own observations and practice the last couple of years, part of me wants to say, oh, Jason, it sounds like you're encountering a more cynical group of people out there when they show up for jury duty. But at the same time, it also sounds like people are showing up with a lot of belief in their own personal power as jurors. It doesn't make any difference about holding somebody accountable if I don't actually have the ability to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's coming from social media. I mean, those algorithms are feeding us the information. It's really hard to see the other side when all we're getting is bombarded with sort of a one-way viewpoint. And we take that in to our decision-making and consider ourselves to be experts on the subject matter. It's the rise of the ultra crepidarian.
0: What is it? What does that word mean? It's
1: basically someone who is basically speaking as if they are on an expert. They are an expert on a subject matter, which they really have no expertise about, but they have a really, really high level of confidence in their viewpoints and their opinions. So it's difficult to shake. And I've also learned that when there's an emotional aspect to it, It's even more difficult because something I've always known about jury decision making is you you can't change emotion with facts. You have to channel emotion elsewhere. Instead of the emotion being angled or channeled towards the defendant, it has to be channeled back towards the plaintiff or towards some other third party or something else some other dynamic within the fact pattern.
0: So let's say I encounter someone, not just in jury selection, but just in practice or in daily life, who I believe to be an ultra-trepidarian. They appear extremely confident. They appear to not know what they're talking about. How can I interact constructively with this person if I just call them an ultra crepidaria and that probably isn't going to enhance our dialogue? Are there tactics I can use to perhaps help them gain a little perspective or cool their jets or whatever that might allow us to have a constructive dialogue about whatever it is we're discussing?
1: Yeah, I mean, in jury selection, you know, you're not really wanting to have much of a dialogue. You're really wanting to find bias. And so those people probably are biased. The key is, how do we get them to admit to that bias? You see the world one way. I can't convince you that the world works in a different way. Wouldn't you agree that because of that opinion, it's going to make it difficult for you to be fair and impartial to both sides? The key is, I'm seeing there's a lot more people with these biases. It's just more of a challenge to get them to admit to their bias because we think that a bias is a bad thing. And the key is for the trial attorney to normalize having a bias because it's too easy to equivocate a bias with some sort of prejudice, which leads to being racist or sexist or something like that. So we've got to normalize being biased. We all have it. Every single one of us does. And it's not a bad thing. It's quite frankly just how the mind works. And we just got to acknowledge it and not be shaken these prospective jurors or these jurors are hearing the word bias and prejudice maybe for you know the first time in their lives within the context uh, of a lawsuit and making a decision so it's it's a little bit of a foreign concept to them and again they already think they know what it means
0: this is a little bit outside of jury selection again but let's say i look in the mirror one day and i'm concerned that i'm looking at an ultra crepidaria and looking back at me what are some double checks that uh, I or anyone else can apply to themselves to make sure they aren't drifting into the world of ultra-crepidarianism, which is very easy to do, as you say, because of the social media information feed that we're all exposed to constantly all day long these days.
1: It's really about exposure to alternative opinions and a willingness to be open to listen to others and a willingness to adopt principles that are opposite. In other words, we've all talked about hey, if I disagree with you, you're my enemy. Or if you disagree with me, you're my enemy. But it, it's not really like us. So we've just got to be open to suggestion and open to the notion that maybe not everyone around us sees the world exactly the same way that we do.
0: What has had legs? And, and had some staying power in the observations you've seen? What are some things that may have faded away or become a little less important as we become a little more normalized as the world's begun to move on?
1: I think the notion of holding people accountable has lingered. I think that's going to linger for a long, long time. I think jury nullification has lingered. It is still a, a ripe environment for jurors basically voting with their own principles as opposed to the fact pattern. Your average juror does not learn the jury instructions or the law that goes with those questions until the end of trial, when it is read to them by a judge, either before the closing arguments or afterwards, depending upon your venue. And at the same time, we know that decision-making doesn't work where I can just wait until I've heard all the evidence heard the questions I need to answer, learned all the instructions to make up my mind. It just doesn't work that way. That's not decision.
0: I've seen enough of your exercises, Jason, to know this. You see an initial pop after the openings. People go to two different extremes and they generally just keep going further and further and further to those extremes.
1: And they stay there. And, and why won't they, why won't they budge? Well, now we're going back to psychology 101, confirmation bias. Discounting the things that disagree with those initial leanings And adopting or carrying with them, holding on to those things that comply with those initial leanings. So I think something that would help in that regard is if jurors knew the questions they needed to answer when they deliberate before they start hearing the evidence as well as those legal instructions. But, I mean, you're a wizard at this, and that's the jury charge conference, which always happens at the end of trial.
0: Of course, you want something that's technically precise, but you also want something people are going to follow. I mean, it doesn't do any good to have a charge that's perfect technically if no one can comprehend it, or it just doesn't do any good if everybody's minds are already made up. And so where that could go, and I have no idea if anyone's ever experimented with this, but, for example, in a negligence case, there may be all manner of subtle questions about who is responsible for this and who is responsible for that, but the basic concepts of causation and duty of care will not be in dispute, and perhaps those could fairly be aired out at the beginning.
1: I test it all the time, and the two biggest ones that pop out is the word negligence and the word fraud. There are street definitions for both those terms that are very different from the legal definitions. But if you hear it's a negligence case, then your own definition of negligence is what you're going to use to evaluate the conduct of the defendant throughout the two-week or the two-month trial. And then oh, later on at the end, you learn that the definition of negligence is totally different than what you had thought it had been for the last 50 years of your lives. I just think that's something you know, we all need to consider is let's, just, let's give them the tools. Let's give these jurors the tools to make a good decision
0: we've known about nullification as long as we've had jury. It's it's been part of the dialogue surrounding the constitutional rights to jury trial. One of the tricks to it is what you can tell juries about it. You obviously can't instruct the jury that everything I just told you about the law, you can ignore. But you also can't instruct the jury and say, now everything I just told you, you have the power to ignore that, but I really wish you wouldn't. That doesn't work either. And so we've evolved to a world where everybody knows it's out there, but No one can say anything to the jury about that power, which leaves them to either just sort of stumble into it of their own volition or they read some pamphlets, some guys passing out at the courthouse.
1: I mean, I've seen plaintiff lawyers tell jurors in closing argument that they have more power than the president of the United States to make this corporate defendant change its rules. That's really inspiring. Answering the question, does the company need to change its rules, is a totally different question that needs to be answered then, was the corporate defendant negligent? there are two different things, but one's a lot easier should the company change its rules thing than the other.
0: Let's say I was defending a fraud case about a business transaction. It's touchy, everybody's emotional, it's a lot of money, there are a lot of personalities involved. As a defense lawyer looking to defend the client in that case, aware of this concern that people have about accountability, how might I to go about preparing my case a little differently now than I might have just five years ago? You've
1: got to deputize them to follow the elements of fraud, and you've got to tell them at the outset that fraud is more than just a lie, omission, or misrepresentation. Because out there on the street, that's the definition. You committed fraud because you lied to me. But we all know, at least in Texas, it's got several elements. So you got to sort of trip up and attack one of the elements that's your strongest element. And then you've got to inspire them to follow the law, to be a good juror, because they all want to be a good juror. So that's the inspiration. To be a good juror, you've got to follow or consider all of these elements, not just one of these elements. And you turn that weakness into your strength.
0: Let's so say I was on the plaintiff's side preparing the same case, aware that my jury is going to be interested in accountability. I want to do the opposite of that. I want to focus on the things that they're likely to come into the courtroom sort of pre-wired to believe in and right. then make that my, fo- my focal point.
1: And the, the whole emotional aspect, because again, you can't change emotion with facts. You can just channel it elsewhere. So we need to write this wrong. We need to make sure it doesn't happen to someone again, things like that.
0: You see that we've settled into a new normal with some of these things, or are we still seeing continued evolution? Against the backdrop, mind you, of another presidential election with some-
1: Yeah, and I think I think that Trump effect is only going to get amplified. The more media attention he gets, the more it gets amplified, and those people will just dig their heels in, too. I mean, because Trump basically argues the world is against him. That is a plaintiff juror. It's an unjust world. That is a plaintiff juror. So we're going to see that get amplified, I think, a lot more. I think the other thing that's going to trend more is oppositional voting. If you look at what's because we're all going to be now exposed to all this political stuff over the next year, we just are. Our algorithms are going to feed it to us. And most of the information we're receiving when it comes to politics is bad stuff about the other candidate. So what ends up happening is the voter votes against a candidate rather than for a candidate. That dynamic is operational in the jury room as well. That is, the jurors vote against a party rather than for a party. There's no reason why these plaintiffs need such large damages, 500 million, 50 million. Those verdicts are against the defendant rather than for the plaintiff. And I think we're being wired to look at disputes that way. Who's wrong rather than who's right? I think we're going to see a lot, lot more of that. And then, you know, if you're scratching your head saying, you know, what happened in that last jury verdict, a hypothesis could be it was oppositional voting, oppositional decision making. And that's coming from how we see what's going on in politics. It's always talking bad about the other person.
0: Juries are customarily expected to come up with unanimous verdicts or tend to majorities. Has it been harder for juries to get to a unanimous consensus?
1: It's harder to get them unstuck with a smaller jury. Place where it's a six person jury and it has to be four to, has to be five to one or six to zero, that's harder to get the four to two or, or the three to three unstuck. When it's eleven to one initially, that's easier to get it unstuck to go to twelve to zero if it if it needs to be unanimous, or a nine to three to get to a ten uh, to two. And basically these people just cave. It takes days. It doesn't happen instantaneously. But we've got to realize that in the jury room, like in any room full of a committee of people who have to vote and make a decision, there's always group dynamics. And part of group dynamics is peer pressure. And these holdouts just give up. They say things like, well, look, all of this is for waste. If I just had this two-week trial and it's a hung jury. They go along to get along. Then there's always those that, you know, initially, they just don't even care. They just go along to whatever the majority is going with. And, you know, we we can't watch these deliberations. We can watch them in mock jury studies, but we can't watch them in reality. But again, if we go back to just group decision making, how groups make decisions, they always take an initial vote. And there's a stat out there. It's like 85 percent. I can't remember, maybe a little higher that whichever way the majority is leaning prevails. So if it's seven to five in one direction, it's going to be 12 to 0 or 10 to, Z, 10 to 2
0: in that same direction, as opposed to reversing course. There's been discussion about this issue that's been labeled implicit bias, that we carry with us biases that we don't know we have about skin color or age or what have you. And there's been talk of uh, giving instructions uh, to jurors to bring to the forefront, a sound a warning sign, if you will that we all have these implicit biases, you should be mindful of them and try to not let them get in the way of making a principal decision in the case. Have you had any experience with that kind of instruction?
1: Again, if we study how decision-making works, just generally speaking, or with jurors, we'll realize that you really can't set aside a bias. It's hard enough to recognize that you have it, but then to say, well, when you go deliberate in four weeks, And you've totally forgotten this conversation we're having right now. Can you set aside your bias? And they'll say, yeah, because ideally, that'd be great if I could do that. In reality, I really can't. Because think about that would be the first time in this person's life that they've had to make a decision while setting aside their bias. However, they define what bias is. We just don't do that. I just don't think we're capable of doing that. I wish we were. But I just don't think we're capable of doing that. Because there's nowhere else where we need to do that. This bias is sort of a mystery wrapped inside an enigma, wrapped inside a fog. And the challenge is to bring it to the table and then admit, get the mock, the juror, excuse me, to admit that that bias would affect them. And so having the bias, admitting to that seems like a negative thing to do. And then also agreeing that it would affect their decision making is hard for people to do so one way you can you can phrase it is to say wouldn't you agree that because of that bias it would make it difficult for you to be a fair and impartial juror if you were to serve on this jury wouldn't you agree that it would be better because of your experience or your opinions to sit on a jury that didn't involve issues a b and c what we need to lean away from that I've been seeing more and more lately is asking a question in this form. Does anyone have a problem with the fact that my client X, Y, and Z, the fact that the company X, Y, and Z? That sounds like you're trying to pick a fight in an alley in New York City, and it shuts people down. Shuts people down. You would rather get these prospective jurors to agree with you. It's a lot easier to agree with someone because we all want to be liked. And if I agree with someone, then maybe I'm going to get liked. So it's, wouldn't you agree that this issue you've had, this belief you've had, this experience you've had in your past would make it difficult for you to be a fair and impartial juror in this case? And then you also can sort of table set it with, Mr. Cole, I understand you're a fair person, but being a fair person is different than being a fair and impartial juror. Because I know you don't want to admit you're not fair, right? But if I change it, and you hear fair and impartial juror, as opposed to perceived fair and impartial person, you might be more likely to agree with me. What's my goal in jury selection? I got to find these biased people. And then I've got to get them to admit to their bias. Those are two different things.
0: You've got a book.
1: Tell me about your book. It's it's a quick read. Uh, It's got a lot of charts and bullet points in there and sort of easy to lift information from it. We tried to make it user friendly and uh, uh, make it as less of a textbook than anything else. And, and it's more of, a, of something that, you know, the night or the day before or the week before your jury selection, you, you could read a few chapters of it and kind of get what to do, what the challenges are and what the solutions are going into jury selection. And this particular version is, is Texas a Texas edition, and we may come out with one that can be used around the country since jury selection. Procedures are a little bit different in different venues, but yeah, we're really excited about it. It's called Mastering dire and it really is just like a short little, okay, let me get a tune-up on my skills in doing voidir.
0: What counsel do you have for my colleagues that try a lot of jury cases to keep in mind? I
1: would pause when you're thinking about your case and just say to yourself, do I really believe that everyone sees the world the same way that I do? because I, I don't think they do. And what I'm seeing in mock jury studies focus groups is more attorneys, more clients being surprised by these particular results. So I'd give a little bit of thought to whether or not you want to test drive the case before your trial by doing some so, sort of a focus group. And then I would also give a lot more credence or prep time to the voir dire and ways to identify the bias and ways to get these prospective jurors to admit to these biases because they are clearly there and they are clearly part of jury decision-making. The challenge is discovering them and getting that prospective juror to admit to it.
0: That's on point, Jason. And as always, very interesting stuff. I learned a ton just talking to you for a few minutes here. So I look forward to getting your book when it's out there on the market. I look forward to working with you at some point in the coming year. And I wish you a happy new year.
1: All right, you too, David. Thank you.
0: Today on Coal Mind, I was excited and proud to welcome back Jason Bloom, the well-known jury consultant. We talked about how jurors and court cases today bring very specific concerns with them to the courthouse about issues such as accountability and responsibility. Those insights are, of course, helpful to trial lawyers, and they apply more broadly to customers and voters, anyone whose opinions are sought after and considered as part of business and government decision-making. Speaking of decision-making, several upcoming episodes of Coal Mind will discuss aspects of the process that our country uses for selecting its next president. If you enjoy such conversations, and particularly if you like this episode, I encourage you to join other happy listeners and leave a kind five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and look forward to sharing with you again soon.